0: Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. On guard for the invasive and destructive little fire ant, they develop super colonies and are known to hitchhike on anything from plants to construction material. And about those bananas in Ulu? And we learn more about Molokai's clean energy future, top down or bottom up. Plus, a new group aimed to boost the pool of Pacific Islanders in film and television. ICANN talks about making inroads. And the song of the northern mockingbird in our Manu Minute. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All this week we've been focusing on a tiny ant with a big bite. The destructive little fire ant has made itself at home on the big island and is trying to make inroads across the state. First discovered in 1999 in Puna, it was also found on Kauai at the same time. We check in with Halen Chalk, who's with the Kauai Invasive Species Committee, to talk about where these new cases are popping up.
1: The first detection for Hawaii Island, it was also the same year for um, the first detection for Kauai. What's interesting is you got to hear from Franny Brewer, Big Island Invasive Species Committee, and the difference between how little fire ant has exploded there versus here from our first detection has a lot to do with how it got here and where it landed. So the first detection of little fire ant on Kauai was in 1999, And the main difference is that it was found on a private residence and it was imported to a private residence. So we're able to contain it on that one property and it wasn't, you know, being dispersed to many other properties versus coming into the horticulture industry and accidentally being dispersed that way. That's why we really work with the nursery and landscaping trade here to educate partners and give them the best management practices to minimize the chances of them importing and accidentally spreading it, just because there is so much movement of plant materials, different kinds of ornamental plants coming in every day. So it is interesting to see how each island is dealing with the invasion of little fire ants and the circumstances of how it can either, you know, unfortunately explode like on Hawaii Island and completely affect everyone's days like the way of life. Or we get lucky, like here on Kauai, and we've been able to pretty much contain it to one site with our first infestation. And only in recent years, we've been really seeing an uptick in new populations.
0: So where have you found it?
1: In recent years, pretty much since 2019 till about now, we now have six populations of little fire ant here on Kauai. Some of them, we've been treating them, and they seem to be unmanageable levels. And then we have some other challenging, more challenging terrain that we're dealing with here. So right now, we are dealing with Molawaa is located on the east side of Kauai. And what's interesting about the Molawaa infestation is that it was actually in the center of an agriculture part of the island. Luckily, Molawaa is a flat and open area. So when we first got the call and detected it there, we were able to get information out to the community the community there is very on board with treatment and containing it because Little Fire Ant can have a huge impact on agriculture. There's a lot of organic farms there, and the last thing we want is for our organic farmers and local farmers to be hindered with Little Fire Ant. As you know, Little Fire Ant are great hitchhikers. They're able to hide on trucks and even fit an entire satellite colony into the size of a macadamia nutshell. So if Little Fire Ant were to get into a large farm, the chances of it being transported through pineapples, bananas, would be very likely. Luckily, the community there is very supportive of the work of KISC, and they hold their neighbors accountable because it needs to be a group effort. If it goes to another property and that property doesn't want to participate, then you know, we just have to hope that it doesn't spread further. But luckily, everybody from the surrounding infestation has been super cooperative and supportive with us.
0: Well, as I go through the website and I look island by island to see, you know, what are the active areas? And then you get a little more detail, you know, how many properties, you know, what's the acreage, you know, three three acres, five acres or larger. There have been cases where you've had detections over the years and you've successfully eradicated them.
1: Yeah, again, this is a lot to do with our Kauai community being so vigilant. We round year have little fire ant test kits available at our public libraries. So we throughout the year urge people to take home a kit, do it with the family, and you know, send in our samples. And sometimes it does come back positive. And because our community is so vigilant and willing to support us, they have really taken it upon themselves to send in samples and to be on top of things. The work of KISS is really a community effort, and we really appreciate that.
0: I saw on the website that if there are property owners who have large parcels, that you have kits that are somehow designed for larger areas, larger tracks versus just backyard or home garden?
1: Yeah, so we created larger versions of our home test kits. The smaller collection kits that we push for in the month of October contain about four to five, you know, chopsticks or stir sticks with an envelope. Um, That's perfect for a small yard or even just putting it through your potted plants. So our biggest concern during the Molawa infestation was that it was going to accidentally hop to different farms. As many farmers go to farmer's market, you know, that would be a perfect hub for little fire ant to jump ship or to accidentally, you know, go from a bunch of bananas, accidentally get set down on another table, and then boom, it goes to another place. So we really focus on outreach to local farmers all across the island, not just on that side of the island. So we have offered and still offering larger kits and also training for the farmers to help their staff be able to survey their fields. So it just comes with more sticks, peanut butter and instructions so that they're able to um, at least do the initial survey and put it in places where they think little fire ant might hide. That way they're able to get us samples in mass amount.
0: You know, when you're talking farms and farm produce, you know, gosh, I'm just thinking like farmer's markets. Because you, you certainly don't want to be spreading it that way, you know, on a bunch of bananas. Yes, absolutely. Another push that we did, we worked with
1: Malama Kauai, who put in a little fire and collection kit with all of their CSAs um, during the month of October that year. So it was able to get the information to families who are supporting local farmers to even test their plants or test, you know, different produce that they pick up from different places. We really want to drive home the, the concept of collecting and looking for little fire ants annually or even more than annually throughout the year. So we can equip our community to know what to look for and also how
2: to collect ants.
0: Well, I guess I just never really thought of a produce from the markets before. But, yeah, you just don't want any hitchhikers on your breadfruit if you bring it into your kitchen. Right, that kind of crazy.
1: Thing. Based on the talks you've had with uh, our colleague Christy and Franny, you can't go to the beach if there's little fire ants. You can't go surfing if there's little fire ants. You can't go get produce if there's little fire ants. It's, it's really scary.
0: Is there anything else that you can share? Um, you said this one area where it was first found, Molawa'a. And what part of the island is that? That is on the northeastern side of the island. So the thing about Malawa'a
1: is it's right between Anahotna and Kilauea, which is more of like the wet side of the island. I think it would be considered in the Ko'olau uh, Moku of the island, which mm-hmm. is known to be typically more wet. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that Malawa'a is the place where it was found a little more coastal. So it does get a good amount of sun, but also
0: rain. How many active cases do you have now and how many were found this year? So there are six
1: cases of little fire ant, six populations of little fire ant on Kauai right now. We found one this year uh, in the Koloa Omao area, which is actually our largest right now, and that one also is near an agricultural area, and that place, Koloa Omao, is a part of the island that little fire ant can really thrive in. I mean, most of Kauai is, besides the far west side, and... This one is actually 52.15 acres, and this is the largest detection we've found so far. Um, right now, we're still doing delimiting surveys to see how, really, how far, but that's the estimated. It's definitely south. So we're still doing our surveying and response planning for that.
0: Anything else that you think would be important to underscore?
1: The next population we have, which has been the most challenging for is the one located in Wailua. Wailua is a very wet, very rainy, very tropical, rainforesty area of the island which little fire ant love to be in. It also has lots of trees and this includes invasive trees like albizia, and it also has thick river valley foliage like Halbush. So this one is the most challenging for us because it's so far back into the Wailua River Valley that it's in such thick rush, we have a really hard time even getting people in there. Our biggest concern with this infestation is that little fire ants do something called rafting. and The same thing that they do when surfers get bit is we're concerned that these little fire ants during the rainy season will then get washed down into other parts of the valley that we're not sure of. And then they start their own satellite colonies. And from there, it will be difficult you know, to survey that much land, especially through that thick brush.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully then you can use the technique that uh, Maui seems to be having some success with by, you know, aerial application. So,
1: Yes, that's that's what we're hoping for, and we're really happy that Maui has got that proof of concept using in um, Nahiku.
0: That was Halen Chalk, who is with the Kauai Invasive Species Committee. This happens to be Spot the Ant Month, and we've been highlighting the spread of these stinging creatures. Hawaii residents are encouraged to collect and submit ants from their properties to help detect and control the spread of the little fire ants and other harmful pest ants that may be new to the state. Find links on the conversation page at HawaiiPublicRadio.org later today. Is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio? Coming up, your backyard quiz.
3: Onihoa,
0: Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii. October means it's fall, which means baseball's fall classic. The World Series is, a, is approaching soon. Uh, Hawaii has deep ties with the sport. Alexander Cartwright, widely considered to be the father of modern baseball, served as Honolulu's fire chief for 13 years. For 27 seasons, 1961 through 1987, we were home to a Triple A minor league team, the Hawaii Islanders. Over the years, we've seen many Hawaii players make it to the major leagues from Prince uh, O'Wana to Sid Fernandez to Shane Victorino and Colton Wong. It's an ongoing legacy of players that started with one man in April of 1914. That's when John Brody Williams became the first from Hawaii and the first Hawaiian to play in the majors. He pitched four games for the Detroit Tigers it, that season and later became known by a very apt nickname. For today's Backyard Quiz... Can you tell us John Brody Williams' nickname? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag.
3: If I pitch, can you catch? Will you hold the ball? Do you know the game? hairline, Can you hit, ball I throw to you? So Park, can you hit, ball I throw to you? Forget your bat ready, baby. Let's see what you can
4: do. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neread Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai neridhawaii.com HBR enriches its reporting with important historical context
5: The anniversary of the death of Captain Cook may not be replacing Valentine's Day celebrations in Hawaii anytime soon, but there is a growing awareness of this history and what it means to the Native Hawaiian people The story goes on February 14th, 1779. Word is being shouted from the ocean that this chief has been shot and killed. And in that
2: one tense moment, the chiefs are not having it. That's when Cook is killed. There's a growing sense that we can no longer tolerate
5: the big and small incursions upon our land and our people. Hawaiian historian Kehao Abad says this was a symbolic moment for Native Hawaiians. Cook's arrival brought with it infectious diseases that devastated the Native Hawaiian population.
0: Support local news coverage. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Residents on the Friendly Ira are at a crossroads when it comes to energy. HPR reporter Catherine Cluet Packdal joins us to talk about the efforts of the Molokai Clean Energy Hui. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so uh, tell us about this approach to uh, green energy future.
2: For sure, it's really been uh, groundbreaking. So for years, Molokai has had this reputation of saying no to pretty much every renewable energy project because it wasn't a good fit. And now the community has stepped up and created their own planning process that allows them to design exactly what residents want and need for their island. And energy experts and officials are listening. It's a really exciting process. And this plan is called the Molokai Community Energy Resilience Action Plan, or C-RAP. It's has taken two intensive years of work. Phase one of the plan was completed over the summer. It's led by the Molokai Clean Energy Hui, under local nonprofit Sustainable Molokai. And here is Leilani Chow, who is energy coordinator at Sustainable Molokai. She has been one of the leaders in the CRAP planning process.
6: Molokai has had decades of community advocacy for our energy needs. A lot of that advocacy looked like opposition to all of the projects that have been proposed. Moloka'i has zero utility scale projects on island. All of the renewable energy we have, which is about 14%, comes from 500 or so rooftop systems on homes and businesses. And so everything else has kind of been rejected by the community because these projects are designed and proposed by off-island groups that were just severely misaligned with community values and lifestyle. And so in 2020, the Molokai Clean Energy Hui formed, inspired by all these decades of community advocacy, but instead of being formed in opposition of a project, we're trying to do the more proactive. And so we started off collecting all of the people that have been involved in energy advocacy on Molokai, figuring out how the processes work for designing and approving projects. And through that process, we've invited a lot of these energy experts and decision makers to join our Hui which was amazing. I think it was really a turning point for us in being able to come up the steep learning curve, understanding energy, and for them, too, to understand the community.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting concept because maybe they can get the hard stuff out of the way at the front and move these energy projects along faster.
2: For sure. It's been a really intensive process, but one of the first things the Clean Energy we did was to make a really big request to the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission. They asked commissioners to temporarily suspend a docket that had been open for requests for proposals from Molokai Energy Projects about two years ago. Mike Wallerstein is commission counsel for the PUC and he talks about what happened and what it means.
7: It's the first of its kind, uh, certainly in this state and as far as I know in the country, of a community leading the electricity planning process. It's almost always led by a utility and overseen by a commission. But uh, this this is very different. So it's very interesting to see what the community did when they were in charge of the planning. The commission has taken a very hands-off role. We got a request to suspend. Uh, we, ha- we had a planning docket going on and a couple of procurement dockets, one procurement docket specifically for Molokai and Lanai, and we got this request a couple of years ago to suspend that docket with respect to the procurement on Molokai, and we did that, and it was to allow this planning process to to happen. And so for almost two years, the commission was basically not involved at all, other than letting the process happen.
0: Yeah, that is uh, just fascinating, you know, to think that, uh, you know, the community is stepping up and leading the way.
2: It is. It's really a huli of the system as we know it, doing things completely differently than uh, it's ever been done before. And over these two years, the Clean Energy HUI has worked really feverishly to complete this massive comprehensive plan. They held nearly 3,000 community conversations. They collected 700 surveys, conducted More than 30 focus groups and workshops and community events, they educated themselves on the renewable energy options and processes. They gathered community feedback and incorporated it all into this island-wide energy plan. They partnered with University of Hawaii's Hawaii Natural Energy Institute for technical assistance and analyses of the different projects, as well as worked with Hawaiian Electric and other Moloka'i energy organizations. So one of those is the Oahu Energy Cooperative Moloka'i, which has two larger solar projects in the works that will provide about 20% of the island's energy consumption, and those will be um, looking like fast-tracked in the near future. Oahu has also been leading an effort to train Molokai solar technicians. So there is a group of Molokai residents ready to do the installation work on all of these upcoming projects. And now phase one of the CRAP process is complete, and the Clean Energy Hui submitted the plan to the PUC. And last month, they updated commissioners and energy officials in a status conference. And that was a really noteworthy step in the process. A whole bunch of uh, folks. Participated in that um, energy status conference, and it really was able to show the work that has been done, the massive amount of work that's been done by the Molokai community. And now all 10 of their proposed projects on Molokai have been picked up for state and federal support, which is really a huge surprise for them. (laughs) They thought that they would have a little bit more time to uh, work on the back end of these projects, but a federal Department of Energy grant through the Energy Transition Initiative Partnership Project will provide technical support to explore specific projects over the next year. And another Department of Energy program will provide planning and implementation phases for uh, a number of these these projects over the next three years. So um, they are looking at along with larger-scale solar projects exploring the options like a a floating solar uh, array on an existing 95-acre Kualapu'u Reservoir, and as well as the potential of a pumped hydroelectric energy storage project from Waukeee. So there's a a wide range of projects from the east end to the west end that they are going to be exploring over the next few years. This community planning process has been really groundbreaking, uh, as, we, as we mentioned, and Chao says it's also been something that other communities in Hawaii can learn from.
6: It represents that community is able to become energy experts and has the competency and eagerness to take on this kind of planning. This is showing that community-led processes like this are extremely successful, and the results, the projects that were proposed were win-win for everybody. We're helping HECO and the PUC to do their job, which is to make decisions that are in the best public interest. And we're helping ourselves by making sure that these projects support us in exactly the ways that we need. So for other communities, this has kind of been a precedent setting pathway. Since we requested the first status conference, a handful of other smaller communities have also requested the ear of the PUC through a status conference or other, which has been so awesome to see. There's been a lot of interest from communities who have been trying to also crack the code and figure out what's the secret sauce to to getting their voices heard. This is a pathway and a template for them to cherry-pick and adapt to fit their community. You
0: know, it's interesting, what I really like is this concept of workforce development, you know, to, to train the folks there on Molokai to do the work.
2: It has, yes. It's been a design, it's been a multi-pronged community-designed, uh, community-led community designed community led and, um, and it looks like it'll be community-built as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was H.B.A.R.'s Catherine Cluett pactold talking to us from Molokai about building the path for green energy projects on the Friendly Isle. You can find the story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Mm-hmm.
4: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, home to the Doris Duke Theatre. October screenings include Limensita with Penelope Cruz and a 50th anniversary restoration of The Wicker Man. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Mars Cafe, we find out what is in store for Mana Up as they gear up for their annual showcase. We'll also hear from a couple of their portfolio companies and find out about the pitch competition and Bloomingdale's marketplace. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect watersheds and aquifers since 1929 for fresh water now and for future generations. Learn more at ProtectOahuWater.org
0: business as usual well that's the subject of today's reality check reporter blaze level is on the line today good morning blaze
8: Hey, good morning, Catherine. Missed you guys. Yes,
0: you know, we should note to our listeners that, um, you know, for the past year here, you've been working with the New York Times as an investigations fellow. And this is one of the stories that you've been working on.
8: Yeah, that's right. Um, It's part of a program that the Times started earlier this year to take some local reporters and give them the investigative skills they need to uh, return back to their newsrooms. Uh, You know, this first story looks at um, some of the sole source contracting practices in Maui County, uh, and to recap for listeners out there, it sort of follows along with some of the bribery cases that we covered last year. If you recall, there was a contractor named Milton Choi who admitted to paying two million dollars to a former Maui Environmental Management director named Stuart Stant in exchange for more than 19 million dollars worth of sole source contracts. I mean, when we say sole source contracts, those are Instances where ostensibly there's only one vendor that can supply a certain good or service, but federal prosecutors have alleged that Choi abused that system to win. You know, a lot of those contracts. Our reporting found that the system is largely still in place.
0: Yeah, and these bribery cases. I mean, they netted a number of people, including um, Maui uh, Senator Kalani English. uh, You know, and uh, uh, you know Choi. A number of folks received uh, prison sentences. Uh, but Stant got the longest, 10 years.
8: Stant got 10 years, and Troy assisted the FBI in you know, this ongoing investigation into public corruption. Uh, as, as you know, there are two former legislators, two Maui officials, including Stant, in exchange for his assistance, Troy was allowed to plead guilty to just one count of bribery. Um, now this system that we're talking about, right? where Stant was the director making these requests for sole source purchases. Um, you you know, sort of the issue that some folks have pointed out to us is that there's a small handful of people that control these contracts. There's directors like Stant, and then there's the finance director who has ultimate, you know, authority to approve purchases. Um, There's some intermediate steps along the way, but largely those are the only two people who have oversight. And once Stuart Stant, you know, is being bribed, the system sort of falls apart, and the worry is that it could all happen again because the loophole hasn't been fixed in some other areas that we examined, other counties and cities and on the mainland. They require their um, county or city council to approve these types of sole source purchases if they're over a certain dollar amount. Anchorage requires anything over $30,000 to go through the council. You know, here we had sole source contracts worth millions that we're going through with, you know, just the approval of a few people.
0: Yeah, and your story starts out with uh, Mayor Victorino at the time, you know, who was really saying, hey, you know, this is scandalous, and, you know, we need to do an audit and and fix this problem.
8: Right, and it seems that that audit was never done. Uh, People we interviewed in the county, um, you know, don't know what happened to it. I spoke to the county auditor, Lance Taguchi, he said that you know he does plan to do an audit on procurement, looking in particular at you know emergency contracts that were pushed through during the COVID-19 pandemic. He wants to see what they could do better. I should also point out that one of the directors, Shane Agawa, he's actually in the same position Stant uh, was in. He's the current head of the Environmental Management Department. He wants to phase out the use of sole source contracting. Now he, uh, you know, acknowledges that. It, in some rare instances, there truly is just one vendor that can supply it. But generally, he wants to try to bid out everything that, uh, you know, the department can.
0: Right. And I think what's important is that you're trying to put in the context of what's happening now as well, not just the pandemic. But, you know, we've got this disaster on Maui and, and things are moving quickly when it comes to contracts over there.
8: Right. There's going to be millions and millions of dollars flowing in through the county. And a lot of good government groups here are sort of worried about that that because the system hasn't been fixed, it leaves everything open to abuse as we've seen in the past. Now we haven't necessarily seen that yet. The county issued about $3 million worth of contracts through the first month after the fires. Um, But, you know, as you point out in the story, there's some other offices that, uh, you know, wish they could be beefed up. The purchasing office is still short-staffed. They also have some oversight functions over these contracts, but they operate with very little people. Then there's the ethics board, but they have no money. A member actually reached out to me this morning and said that he wants to put this issue on the agenda next month. He said they've been hamstrung by having no staff.
0: Yeah, I mean, that may be the reality. Uh, You know, there may have been good intentions to put a stop to this practice, but, uh, yeah, you want to make sure that uh, we're pretty transparent about what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Interesting, interesting story. But thank you so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. That uh, was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Uh, read his story for yourself. Visit civilbeat.org. <music> local nonprofit hopes to boost the growth of Hawaii's film and television industry. The International Cultural Arts Network, or ICANN, was founded actually by three Hawaii film industry veterans. Maori actress Te Ao Ohene Pehinga Rauna is its new program director. She starred in some of New Zealand's most popular television series and recently landed a role in Jason Momoa's Chief of War series. She sat down in our studio with The Conversation's Russell SubiONO, and they were joined by Hawaii actress Leleae Kahalepuna Wong, who's appeared in Magnum PI.
9: Can you talk about what the International Cultural Arts Network is and how it got started?
10: I can, for short, or the International Cultural Arts Network, was an idea born of conversations that were had between the likes of Jason Momoa, Brian Keolana, Angela LaPrette, Robert Suka, all people who had come up into the industry through Hawaii. And there were a lot of conversations about why there weren't as many people in here, well in this monster of an industry that we're all a part of. And over conversations and born of a project that we most recently did in Hawaii, I kind of showed up on the scene and also wanted to know why that was the case, why we were going to Aotearoa and to the other Pacifica islands looking for talent. And it was, it was this, there was a a gap somewhere along the path to this, or I suppose what you would call, in quotes, success in the industry. Mm -hmm. There were gaps in there and so... ICANN was launched to try and help bridge that gap, to help elevate and uplift our indigenous people within Hawaii and on a global scale eventually, to help close that gap because yeah. who better to guide that process than people who have grown up on the island and walked this path and figured out this path. And so through that, we also kind of roped in. I'll throw myself under the bus here. I roped in (laughs) all of my castmates and started going, come on, let's have this conversation. Let's figure it out. Let's see what we can do as the ones who are in this industry to uplift our community, though not all of us are from Hawaii. Brian Keolana, who says we are not separated by land, but connected by water. And so and we very much feel that in Aotearoa, Hawaii is our whānau. they're our ohana, they're they're our distant cousins, a little mm-hmm. far away. So we felt a sense of duty to give back and do something, yeah. because something has to change. Yeah. And ICANN is here to try and help make that change happen.
9: For somebody who is from Aotearoa, for somebody that has been in the New Zealand film industry for quite some time now, when you look at your Cousin Nations and you look at other Pacific Island indigenous people, do you look at them and, and see opportunity to grow their film industry as well?
10: A hundred percent. I was lucky enough to work with a wonderful woman named Kalei and Kiawe and Koho Okahi who helped guide us through the language side of the project we were working on. And I learned through them that the language journey that Hawaii has gone through was in some part shared knowledge that they gained from Aotearoa. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that in language, if we can do that in the Kamehameha schools, Mm -hmm. why can't we do that in the industry? Granted, the industry is a scary beast. Right. It's a different ball game. It's a completely different ball game. But I think Aotearoa can be used as a blueprint on how to be better. I don't want Hawaii to, to take what we did and copy and paste. Nah, Hawaii is its own people. Yeah. Kanaka Maoli have their own culture. Use what we did, look at what we did, and be better. Yeah. Do better. And we're here to make sure that you have all the resources that you can from what we've done so that you can.
9: Lele, yes. you, you were born and raised on Kauai, right?
10: I was born here, born here. Okay. On, on Oahu, but I was
5: raised on Kauai. Raised on Kauai. Yeah. <laughs> it's
9: beautiful. <laughs> You've been acting for several years in both local theater as well as on television. You're a woman from a small town with a big dream. Why is an organization like ICANN important for someone like you who is on the stage, who is in front of the camera?
5: Well, I feel like something like ICANN is an ohana. It's a community where I can come to, I have a safe space to go to, to be able to hone my craft. Without judgment. And I feel like there's always something to learn. You know, not all knowledge is learned from one source. So I can is just another avenue for me to learn more about my craft. Yeah. And I'm learning a lot. It's great. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh.
9: <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up, the first time I really ever saw... A Polynesian represented on screen in a very Polynesian way was once we're warriors. I know I'm a little bit older than you. What was your experience? What was the first time you watched the movie or a TV show and you saw our culture or Polynesian culture depicted on the screen? It was the
5: same. It was yeah. once we're warriors. Yeah. I must have been six, seven years old. My mom never shied away hiding any kind of violence or anything like that from me in film and TV. And so she allowed me to watch it. And I was in awe. It was the first time I looked at the screen. I was like, wow, that's me. That's, they they look like me. I think any Hawaii kid will tell you their first experience with any Polynesian film
9: is once we're warriors,
5: at least in our generation.
9: Tao, it seems to me that The New Zealand Film Commission is on the leading edge of telling indigenous stories. How do you take your experience in that film industry and apply it to your role in ICANN to elevate, educate, and empower diversity for Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in film and TV? Mm.
10: I took nothing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I've had very little to no experience with the New Zealand Film Commission, other than obviously they are a huge part of production development in Pacific Storytelling. But my knowledge, the things that have taught me how to do the work that I do with ICANN was actually taken from my family. So I, you might not know this name, I don't know how many people do, but I am a descendant of Piri, who was one of the first Māori to ever graduate from a university or college, college? Yeah, college with a degree in law. And so he, 250 years ago, he went back to our people and started a kind of movement that my family has continued for 250 years. And so I was raised to to continue that work. And so my family have done it, my grandparents have done it, my great grandparents have done it, and um, my grandfather used to love telling me that I was born in the hospital and three days later I walked straight into, onto the Marae and attended my first Māori development meeting. <laughs> um, and, I've been, and I've been, yeah, I've been kind of raised in, in that community to be able to do this kind of work. It was a little controversial that I decided to do it in the creative industries, <laughs> but yeah, so most of my knowledge comes from indigenous social development within Aotearoa, outside of the creative industries. Yeah.
9: I love that it's part of your bloodline to do yeah. this work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah Thanks, <right>? mom. <laughs> <laughs> Lele, I've done a handful of interviews with Hawaiians and other indigenous people in the entertainment industry. The word representation is something that comes up consistently. What are your thoughts on where we are with Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander representation in film and television?
5: I think we are further along. I'm glad I'm seeing more and more diversity when it comes to representation, what it means to be local, not just native and seeing more local people out there. I know there's been a lot of controversy about, you know, the project that's been going around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, as well as all the other films that are coming in like Lilo and Stitch and so on and so forth and that there's been this big hubbub, you know, about not enough Hawaiians being on the film and all that kind of stuff and but at the same time like i understand where they're coming from and i sympathize i'm a part of this industry i i know like i just lost the job so i get it but at the same time i know the kind of a beast this industry is and i understand the mentality of how some of these producers and things these these people important people think So I kind of give it the benefit of the doubt. However, I never forget. (laughs) (laughs) I don't forget. That's right, yeah. (laughs) And so I know they can do a lot better Mm. when it comes to representation, because Hawai'ians, we've been shut out a lot of the time from our own roles, and we should be allowed to represent ourselves.
9: Te'ao, looking from the New Zealand perspective where it feels like the New Zealand Film Commission just decided we're just going to do films about Maori and we're just going to put it out there and you're going to like it. (laughs) Does it seem like that's the approach that they took in the early days like with Once Were Warriors and other films or do you think there's a different approach that Hawaii can take when it comes to telling our stories about our culture, our people? (laughs)
10: Ooh. <laughs> New Zealand <laughs> Film Commission, you're not going to like me for this one. You know what? Oh, well. Um, they actually didn't endorse Once Were Warriors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Once Were Warriors was an idea. Yeah. And they went to New Zealand Film Commission and New Zealand Film Commission actually turned around and said, no one's going to watch this. So they, the creators behind it, including Cliff and Tim and Renna, they all got together and said, nah, we're telling this story. Yeah we're making this show and they're gonna like it. And they did it on their on the backs of their own money. That was entirely invested by their own pockets and they just did the damn thing and it looked like magic and it exploded. And so, I mean, if you wanna take that, yeah, do it. Force yourselves <laughs> into, this, into the narrative because honestly, in my experience, they don't want to let us in. From what I understand of New Zealand Maori film, and storytelling within Aotearoa we had to fight and force our way in and then once the rest of the world saw it then they jumped on board okay. because unfortunately the industry likes to pick and choose what parts of the indigenous narrative they like things that don't trigger mm. but that's why things like I Can need to be put in place and in this particular scenario kanaka need to be at the table to discuss and support and be a part of the development of these programs and these workshops to uplift and educate and like integrate our narrative because no one else is going to do it for us unfortunately yeah. and the industry is not going to let us do it our way
9: i know that ICANN has been putting together some local events since its inception this year This past weekend, New Zealand film legend Cliff Curtis gave a talk on Oahu. Can you talk about any events that are coming up for ICANN in the future?
10: So we're still currently very much in development and still trying to finance. I mean, that's the reality of a non-profit, isn't it? Is trying to find ways to actually be able to create ease, and unfortunately that involves money. Mm-hmm. But currently we're doing Mana Ika Mana, an acting intensive, which our wonderful Lilia has blessed us with her presence on. And they'll be working over three months, four masterclasses, honing and developing their craft, using Pacifica actors in the industry who can give a unique perspective on what it is to be Pacifica in the industry, but also to be able to navigate that world and the craft as indigenous people. We hope to do many other things, hopefully a writer's programme. Brian Keolana, who is a master waterman, he is this he is the water whisperer. He also wants to help diversify the training of stunt work in that hopefully we train more people on both land and water, because that's what makes us epic. Um, (laughs) and then beyond that there's a lot of things we'd love to do I think we want to cover all parts of the industry directing, producing, financing ICANN's Mission is to create more opportunities and streamline the path to the industry and in all of its facets. Because as Pacifica, as indigenous storytellers, I mean, it's Taika Waititi who said it, we are the original storytellers. And we have the power, we have the ancestral knowledge, and we have the ability to work in any facet of the industry. Yeah. It's just a matter of, of coming together as a community and supporting that journey. And that's what ICANN's about.
9: Te'ao, Lele, thank you so much for your time.
10: Thank you. Thanks for having us. (laughs) That was
0: Maori actress Te'ao Ohene Pehinga Rauna and Hawaii actress Lele Ae Kaha Lipunawang. They were talking to HVS' Russell SubiONO about ICANN, a new Hawaii nonprofit focused on helping more Pacific Islanders land roles in the film and TV industry. We'll have more info on our website later today.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
11: When Trina Edwards was a teenager, people were constantly asking her how she was feeling.
10: I'm locked in a damn building. How do you think I'm feeling?
11: Trina was in a psychiatric hospital with no idea when she would get out. If
0: you were to look up Institutionalize in a book, you'd see a picture of me.
4: Warehousing Kids, or the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at seven, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Strong.
0: Mockingbirds will be brought to the territory this month by Hui Manu. That is a headline from a 1931 edition of the Honolulu Star Bulletin. Back then, it was popular to purposely introduce non-native species. Ninety years later, you can still find a few northern mockingbirds in the islands. Our host, Patrick Hart, tells you what to look for. We've got their song, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's your Manu Minute.
11: Mockingbirds are a recognizable part of the bird world in North and Central America, but many people in Hawaii don't know that we have them here as well. They mostly live in dry woodland habitats on the leeward side of all of our islands, and even there generally aren't very common. Mockingbirds are not native to Hawaii. They were introduced in the 1920s as a songbird and for insect control. About the size of minas, but with a longer tail, they're gray, dark wings that have bright white patches that can only be seen when they fly. One of the most interesting things about mockingbirds is that they can learn hundreds of different songs and often mimic the sounds of other species of birds, as well as frogs, crickets, dogs, car alarms, and squeaky gates. See if you can recognize who or what this mockingbird is trying to mimic. Why do mockingbirds do this? Most likely because females prefer males that are the most fit and have the best genes to pass down to their offspring. And the best way for males to show females how fit they are is through their song repertoire. Males that can mimic a large variety of different songs and sounds are showing that they're stronger and more experienced than those with smaller repertoires. In support of this idea, One recent study found that while male mockingbirds sang throughout the year, they produce the greatest variety of song types when they're courting females just prior to breeding. Some of our native Hawaiian bird species, such as the apapane, are also known to mimic other species, but none as well as the Northern Mockingbird. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department.
4: Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at Friends of
0: And now it's time to take a swing at the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier we asked you for the nickname of John Brody Williams, the first person from Hawaii and the first player of Hawaiian descent to play in Major League Baseball. Williams was born on Oahu in 1889 and was educated at both St. Louis and Punahou schools where he established himself as a talented player. Williams was first spotted by baseball scouts in 1910 and by 1911 was making his first start for a minor league team in Sacramento then in 1914 he played in his first game in the majors for the Detroit Tigers that was the pinnacle of his career in his later years he returned to Oahu and worked for the city until 1959 many still remember him By his nickname, Honolulu Johnny, the answer we were looking for. And we stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we're out of time now, but up tomorrow we try to make sense of the conflict playing out in Gaza. Leave your feedback on our talk line, uh, talk back line, uh, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at org. We welcome your feedback. The Conversation is available as a podcast online or on our website, uh, or check out your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.